0: Invite you to open your Bible to the Gospel of Luke. We will be in chapter 9, surveying uh, verses 18 through 27. So Luke chapter 9, 18 through 27. Now it happened that he was praying alone. The disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever shall save his life will lose it, But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So far the reading of God's word. Dear congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, The question that's been percolating around in our heads through this section of Scripture is, Who is Jesus? Now Herod and the crowds were the first to answer this this question. And Scripture revealed to us that Jesus is the one who equips us. He's the one who feeds us. He's the one who we need to depend upon. And now Jesus springs the question, on the 12th, as a focus turns to them, and they get to answer the question to this pop quiz. So, our theme this morning as we examine Scripture is Jesus defines his title and the way of discipleship. And we'll look at this in two points first, understanding the Christ of God, and the second, following the Christ. Of God. So when the twelve returned from their evangelistic mission, they found Jesus and they withdrew with him to Bethsaida. And the argument is that the word bes- or "the word withdrew" there was used when Jesus went to be alone and pray. Now, if Jesus intended to withdraw to be alone and pray with the disciples, we do not know that for sure, but. We see that in the text as it picks up Jesus praying alone. And the disciples were with him. Jesus then turns to the disciples and asks them two questions. The first question that Jesus asked is, Who do the crowds say that I am? The disciples answered with the same answer that reached the ears of Herod. John the Baptist, Elijah, or one of the prophets of old. And you can wonder about the crowds of people who profess Jesus to be one of these three things. Where did that knowledge come from? Was it an eyewitness account? Was it knowledge that they heard maybe from a friend of a friend who may or may not have been in, in or out? Of proximity to Jesus? Was it first-hand knowledge? Or were they secondhand rumors? How many of the crowds were actually interested in knowing Jesus? Or were they content to know him from a distance? See, Herod sought to see Jesus, but it was not until the end of Jesus' life that Herod finally had the opportunity to meet him. And remember when he did, Herod and his coronies, all they did was treat Jesus with contempt, and they mocked him. There was no interest in knowing who Jesus was. So you cannot know Jesus by a proxy endorsement done by others. And this is why Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? The second question he asks is more personal. The question pushes the disciples to decide on something that they have not probably put a lot of thought into or if any at all. This question is personal and it's given to the 12. And just because Peter's the one that answers doesn't mean that the question was only extended to him. See, the text says that Jesus asks them. And the you there is referring to you all, it's plural. The question is for all the twelve disciples. He asked the disciples because the question requires a personal answer. Every follower of Jesus must acknowledge and confess for him or herself. Every one of the disciples has to make that decision for themselves. And although the answer comes from the mouth of Peter, there should be no doubt in our mind that this was the individual answer of all twelve of the disciples. Just as each one of them who calls himself a Christian must also decide for themselves. See, this is Not a decision that is made for you, but this is a decision that is made by you. You and you alone must come up with the answer. It's not your parents who are believing for you, it's not your group of friends that will tell you about Jesus. It's not a decision made by the church for you, it's something personal. You must believe for yourself. And as the outspoken member of the group, Peter confesses who Jesus is the Christ of God. But what does Peter mean when he confesses Jesus to be the Christ of God? His confession indicates that Jesus is not merely a teacher and that he's more than a prophet. Christ is literally translated as the one who has been anointed. We're also the Messiah. So Peter's confession is that Jesus is that messianic hope of Israel that was prophesied about. See, no longer are they part of a promise, but a fulfillment. And that answer is personal. It takes faith and a certain amount of risk. Like any commitment, a certain amount of risk is involved that cannot be achieved just by knowledge alone. Now, Jesus has been confessed as Christ by angels and by demons, but this is the first time it's come from the mouth of a human. And why did Peter come to this conclusion? Yes, Peter and the disciples saw Jesus proclaiming the kingdom of God, They would have seen him doing many miracles, healing and casting out demons. But the disciples would have not seen no royal dignity in Jesus, no royal army, no crown upon his head. They saw a poor man with no place to lay his head. Yet under these circumstances, Peter confesses boldly, That his belief is that Jesus is the Christ of God. And that takes a great deal of faith. But even with that confession, the disciples still have much to learn about what it means that Jesus is the Messiah. Upon hearing the confession, Jesus strictly charged and commanded the twelve not to tell anyone. And if you're wondering if Jesus' response comes across a bit harsh, you might be right. See, the Greek word translated as strictly charged is used 12 times in the Gospel of Luke. And every other time it is translated, it is translated as rebuke. But why would Jesus rebuke Peter for saying that he's the Messiah? Peter wasn't wrong, was he? No. Peter was right. But Messiah carried an expectation of a conquering and reigning king as promised through the Davidic covenant. Because of these Jewish expectations, Jesus' ministry could become more difficult as he could be forced into political, military leadership roles. And if you remember, wasn't, wasn't that the case for John? He had an expectation about the work of Jesus and what was it was supposed to accomplish. Remember, he was in a jail cell. Yet Jesus was helping Gentile soldiers. The Messiah was for the nation of Israel. So he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, Was he the one to come, or should they look for another? See, Jesus was not meeting the expectations of who John thought Jesus was. The Messiah was seen as a triumphant figure. Who did not suffer? So because of these expectations that accompanied the word Messiah, Jesus rebuked his disciples not to tell anyone. And even though Peter confesses Jesus to be the Christ of God, it's only Jesus that can fully define the title of Peter's confession. After Jesus hears the confession, he strictly charges them not to tell. He calls himself the Son of Man and foretells what must occur. See, Jesus refers to himself... As the Son of Man and not as the Christ as Peter referred to him. Now Jesus could have been using this title to counter the faulty conception that people formed about the Messiah as an outward king. See, This title was less likely to be understood by most people and was less likely to make false conclusions from a title But also, it didn't invoke warlike attitudes from Jesus' contemporaries, those that might feel belittled. There's an incoming Messiah. So, by avoiding the title that might create some confusion, Jesus then clarifies what the Son Son of Man must endure. What Jesus Begins to describe are things that must take place. But the suffering of Jesus as Messiah is not an unfortunate circumstance. But foreordained by God. And the first of which is suffering many things. See Israel would be very familiar with the imagery of the suffering servant in Isaiah. But they did not associate it with the Messiah. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He bore our griefs and carried out our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Oppressed and afflicted, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. See, the life of Jesus was that of suffering and of humiliation. He was despised and rejected by men as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. He was rejected by elders, by the chief priests, and by the scribes, the ruling religious body. As the king of creation. He came to serve his creation. The ones he came to serve were the very ones who rejected him. Rejected to the point of death. See Jesus foretells his death and resurrection on the 3rd day. There was the leaders that placed him there on that cross. Not as a victim of criminal lawlessness, but by careful actions of the religious leaders and it's only god that can endure this treatment any human would have an inferior complex but jesus allows himself to be rejected despised and of small of no significance rejected by man even though he was a king Yet after all this suffering came glory. After the cross, there was a crown. See, Christ resurrected from the dead and now sits at the Father's right hand, a place of glory, a place of authority. See, Jesus' life was a life of suffering, for redemption, of death, Resurrection. And because his life was those things, it was a life that redeemed his people. See, defined by Jesus, the Messiah is consistently associated with suffering, which was a stumbling block for the Jews, but revered by Christians. And there's no greater tragedy or air of judgment than underestimating who Christ is. He is more than a mere teacher. He's something greater than the prophet. He is the Christ of God. The disciples needed further instructions on what Jesus the Messiah would be and what was in store for those who followed him. It was a journey through rejection, exaltation, and glory. But before glory, they're about to embark on a road of suffering. See, Jesus has been teaching the disciples about a dependence upon Him for all that they need. And the lesson now extends to anyone who chooses to follow Him. See, anyone who anticipates a direct route of glory, Believing that power and privilege are the destiny of those who follow Jesus is in for a rude awakening. See, Jesus corrects and informs whatever, whoever would ever follow him must do three things. Jesus gives three commands that every follower must do. These are imperatives from the mouth of Jesus' commands. They're not suggestions or good advice or something to consider, but commands to do this. And that first command is to deny himself. The path behind Jesus is a path of self denial, it is not a road of self glory, but of service. It is the duty of. Of believers to present their bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto God. The force is understanding that you're not your own. It's not your reason or your will that guides you, nor you're seeking what your flesh wants, but you're forgetting yourself. You're forgetting your interests. Because if you follow Christ, Confess him to be the Christ and put your faith in him for the forgiveness of your sins. You are not, you're no longer your own, but you're God's own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, his wisdom and his will have to guide your actions. Every part of you is directed towards him. Everything that you are is his. Remember, even your talents and your gifts are not because of your own doing. They're gifts of God. Gifts that are best used in the service of God and of your neighbor. If you are to be a disciple, you must remove yourself. Because disciples cannot respond to their own personal will. Disciples respond to the will of God. God needs to direct you. You You're unable to direct yourself. Your direction leads you to using your gifts selfishly. And denying yourself and living for Christ is the first command. If anyone would come After Jesus. Now next, after Jesus removes something from you, he adds something to you. He commands you to pick up something. Something you're supposed to pick up daily. It's your cross. Picking up the cross implanted a vision in the minds of those in Jesus' day that might not be instilled in our minds today. First, we should know that there are no survivors of a Roman crucifixion. Therefore, the cross represents a total claim on your life. There was no escape. Second, it displayed a person's humiliation in their crime before the state. It publicly displayed a person's submission to the state as they bore their punishment. Just as The cross showed submission to the state for the Christians who pick up that cross, show a submission to Christ. It means one has died to the world and is separated from the world's lifestyle and the world's values. And this is harder than self denial because it's preparing for a life that is hard, a life that is difficult. A life of labor, full of constant grief. See, your Lord's whole life was a perpetual cross. And if you're coming after Jesus, yours will be too. And it has similarity to Peter's confession because it's personal. See, Jesus does not instruct those coming after him to pick up a cross But his cross. It's personal. A cross that is tailored to you. It's not like going to Home Depot and sorting through the two by fours. I don't want this cross. There's too many splinters. It looks abrasive to my back. Nor do I want this one either. It looks bowed, might not sit nice on my shoulders. See, everyone who comes to Christ has a cross specifically tailored for their pilgrimage. There's no looking at other crosses and murmuring, well, that one looks smoother, that one looks lighter. Why didn't I get that one? That's not your cross. The cross you're carrying is your cross. And you're called to carry it daily. Daily. And as you handle your cross, it should establish virtues along your pilgrimage. Handling your cross should make you humble. If you walk with confidence that you are able in your own power to be sufficient for for things, God can afflict you with the weight of the cross. And when you're crushed and buried by the cross, you humble yourself. And learn to rely on his strength. Which is the only way. That you can stand under such force of afflictions. The cross can also teach you about obedience. Remember what Peter says. That your faith is tried by tribulation. Just as gold is tested by a fiery furnace. Learning obedience through the things that you suffer just as Christ did there's still that sinful disposition in your flesh that lingering sin that wants to rid itself of that cross the repetition of daily picking up your cross forces obedience and puts to death the lingering selfishness it keeps hands in working shape Hands that are able to continue daily the daily work of picking up your cross and following after Christ. And there's something that the cross shouldn't make us, and that's indifferent. See, carrying your cross does not mean you harden yourself like some stoic philosopher, someone who acts like a cold stone. There's pain along this pilgrimage. There's times to weep, times to mourn, are also time of joy. You're not making a statement or you're not showing that you're stronger than any other Christian if you can make it through your pilgrimage without shedding a tear or showing any emotion. But you're to weep with those who mourn and rejoice with those who who rejoice. And the cross should also make you hopeful. The cross makes you hopeful because God promises believers that he helps you in your trials. Paul encourages, we have been troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We were perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted. Persecuted but not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed. You don't know what? walk this pilgrimage on your own strength. It is on the strength of the Lord. But also you know that there's a finish line, a moment when you can turn that cross and you'll receive a crown. You can be hopeful because Jer- Jesus carried that cross Perfectly. And if you follow him, you will finish too. The last command from Jesus is just to do that. To follow him. See, if you're not denying yourself and picking up your cross daily, you cannot fulfill the next command. The next command to follow Jesus. See, if you're following Jesus, he requires you to deny yourself and take up your cross. There's movement. It requires you to follow the same pattern that he walked. You're not picking up a cross arbitrarily and standing around with it, but you're following a pattern. A pattern that starts with suffering but leads to glory. A trail from cross to crown. And there's no solo roots or Moments where you can wander off and explore. It is following Jesus all the time. And there's no better place to be. If you have ever been in knee high snow, you can easily understand the benefit of following someone. See, Jesus has stepped through the snow, each step packing it down, making it compact so that you don't have to sink and tire quickly. Each step is the perfect distance so you can place your footstep right on top of his so you cannot get lost. He blazed the trail for you and all you have to do is follow. But if you're too proud to place your foot in the footprint of Jesus, you will not find a crown at the end of that trail. See, when you come after Jesus, there's a choice. It's not a both and, but rather an either or. It is either Jesus has total claim on your life, or he does not. You cannot have one foot on each side of the fence. Jesus Christ claims your whole person. And if the command's of Jesus sound challenging and leave you worrying about following him. Jesus does not leave you without refocusing your perspective, helping us to understand the benefit of denying ourselves and taking up our cross and following him. First, Jesus says in verse 24, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And this is a paradox that summarizes the last three commands of Jesus. If you're trying to save your life by avoiding persecution from the world, by conforming to their standards, in order to save your life, your life will be lost. But the Christian life is just that. It's forsaking your life, denying yourself, picking up your cross, and following after your Lord. It is a momentary loss given up for future gains. Suffer now, surrender your life, and your life will be saved. Jesus follows up with a rhetorical question that further demonstrates his point in verse 25. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Now let's say if you could put the whole world in the palm of your hand. All the money, power, fame, all the things that you want right at your fingertips. Then what? Then what? You live comfortably for a certain amount of days unknown to you? Then what? See, to trade... To gain the whole world for the sake of your soul is a losing proposition. Trading momentary comfort for everlasting anguish is a bad deal. And this is the picture that Jesus paints in verse 26. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him of him will the son of man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the father and of the holy angels. See, actions have consequences, and those too afraid to confess Jesus will reap what they sow when the Son of Man comes in all his glory. The picture is a tragic one. When Jesus comes and reveals who has the real advantage, it will not be those who cling to their life, trying to gain the whole world, and who are ashamed of Christ. There is no advantage to that way of living, to that system of life. But all those who ally themselves with Jesus will experience the kingdom of God. See, in Jesus' last encouragement is found in verse 27. Ensuring that the kingdom of God will come soon. So close that there are some there that will not taste death until they see it. Now, Scholars will spill plenty of ink over what Jesus meant by this. There are compelling conclusions from commentaries to one that says Jesus is referring to the transfiguration, an event that will occur very soon. Or others point to the resurrection, ascension, and Pentecost events found at the later part of Luke in the beginning of Acts. But the encouragement is not found if you can properly discern what Christ meant by this statement, but rather that the wait is over. It is no longer a time of promise, but it's a time of fulfillment. The promised one of God is here. And this is an encouragement we get to see because of our perspective in redemptive history. Jesus Christ died and was raised Victorious. He sits at the Father's right hand in all power and glory waiting for his return. The greatest comfort you have in your pilgrimage is because what Christ has done for you. You can deny yourself because Jesus first denied himself. And served you. You can pick up your cross. Because the Lord carried his cross perfectly. So that you don't have to worry about carrying it without fail. He's done that for you. You can follow him. Because he first sought you out. He has redeemed you from your sins, from your misery, and He places you on a path to glory. Dear congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who is Jesus? He is the suffering servant, the Christ of God. The one you must live for, and the one that you must follow. So follow him. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Scripture you have revealed to us who. Jesus is that we can come to know him that he is the one that equips us the one who sustains us the one we must depend upon but that also that he is the Christ of God the one that was promised the one who we've waited for we thank you Lord that he is someone that we can follow and someone we can live for that we have the strength to deny ourselves, because Christ first denied himself. That we can follow Christ and we know that following him, although hard and although there's suffering and trials and tribulations, but that it's a path that leads to glory. And it leads to glory because of our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Through his name we pray, amen.